0: Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection
1: from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply.
0: Welcome to the Sox Machine 2020 postseason postgame show. Here to break it all down, analyzing the in-game decisions and key moments, are your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine postgame show. I'm Josh Nelson, and it's happy times here as the Chicago White Sox win game one by a final score of 4-1 to one over the Oakland Athletics thanks to the power provided by Jose Abreu. Yasmani Grundahl and Adam Engel? Yes, Adam Ingle got the party started with a home run, but Lucas Giolito didn't need much help as he turned in one of the best postseason starts in Chicago White Sox history. Let's start there. Joining me to recap game one is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, what a performance from Lucas Giolito today. And it really cements his place as the Chicago White Sox current ace.
1: Yeah, there was nothing to really dislike. I mean, if you had to quibble, you might uh, be picky about how it started and how it ended. You know, he relied on his outfield defense early and maybe Rick Renteria left him in well, definitely one batter too long, maybe two batters too long, but in the middle, um, it's everything you wanted to see. Uh all three of his pitches being used effectively, um, you know, relying on his defense, like letting his defense do work until uh, uh trouble surfaced, and trouble never really surfaced. So it's hard to blame him for not getting whiffs if uh he's not paying for any of the contact being put into play. Yeah,
0: job well done. Yeah, Lucas Gilito's final line, seven innings pitched. He only allowed two hits. One earned run, which he technically did not allow. That ended up being an inherited run that Evan Marshall allowed, uh, which was a tough ground ball for Tim Anderson. Anderson tried to turn two, but he at least got the out at second base. It was a nice defensive play by Anderson. Um, But Giolito only allowed one walk, and he struck out eight on 100 pitches. And he was perfect through six innings. I mean, Jim, your first postseason start... And you got a perfect game going after six innings. I, I'm i trying to remember as far as, because we saw obviously terrific starts in the 2005 postseason. But this, as I mentioned in the intro, this has to be one of the best postseason starts by any Chicago White Sox starter. And, yeah, I'm going yeah, to have to contextualize that later you <laughs> just to
1: see how it matches up. You know, it's, it would have fit well in with the uh, 2005 run for sure, um, but it was funny watching uh, Twitter as Gialito completed six innings, and 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 you know a few people marked uh, uh, remarked on this, and James Feegan in particular uh, issued some mild profanity, you know, like saying, "Oh great, here's another no hitter, here's another uh, time where like writers and and uh, reporters and and you know TV producers gonna have to pull out all the stops to tell Lucas Gialito's." Uh, story for a national audience for the second time in two months <laughs> just like you don't want to go to yeah everyone wants to see a giolito giolito no hitter but for people writing and talking about it, it's like it's hard to go to that well again uh to summon all the big words and important uh intonations and everything like it's 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 funny that it almost became like oh great here we go again <laughs> that's, uh that's uh that's a problem and stress that uh you know people on our end will will happily take
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I It's got to suck right now for the beat reporters because I don't know if they've traveled to Oakland. I don't know if they're like us, watching the game on TV and out, and then having to join a Zoom to do their interviews. Um, but, yeah, I that, I don't think that's a big problem to have if any of the White Sox pitchers want to throw a no-hitter during the postseason. I know it's a lot of pressure to perform writing the game recap when Giolito threw the no-hitter. I'm not going to lie. I was quite nervous because I didn't want to write a sucky recap after a tremendous moment. But that's one of those things he call a good moment to have. Now, for Lucas Giolito and his 100-pitches gym, something different that we really haven't seen during the regular season. He threw his slider more than the changeup. His pitch breakdown was 54 fastballs, 26 sliders, and 20 change-ups, and he, he created nine swings against his slider, and six of the nine swings was a whiff from Oakland hitters. They had a 67% whiff rate against Lucas Giolito's slider, and I thought that was the best slider that Giolito has had all season long, and it came in a great time, and I think that was a big factor why he was able to really keep this Oakland lineup unbalanced against him.
1: Yeah, for, for some reason, or, um, you know, I think there was a reason, you know, Giglito only got two whiffs on 20 change-ups, gave up some pretty firm contact. Uh, uh, and so when you see that, you can understand why, you know, James McCann might want to call a different pitch or Giglito mm-hmm. might want to shake to a pitch. But seeing them abandon it that early and go to the slider and see the comfort with the slider as the primary second pitch, like it's been there all along, was really remarkable. And, and just, uh, one of those things where, you know, people talk about the relationship between McCann and Giolito and it seems like they do anticipate what the other scouting report is and know how to get off it, uh, before other, um, teams can correct it, or at least notice what's going on. I think that's one change we've seen from them before we'd see like too many changeups and, or too many fastballs, not enough sliders. And he'd have like three rough batters in a row allowing, you know, one or two runs, or maybe a homer that was maybe unnecessary for getting too cute. And now it seems like with the game's counting, and and maybe they're not trying to amuse themselves or get through a start with minimal torque or something. You know, maybe mm-hmm. uh, just wanting to you know cruise through a game as much as possible. But with the game's counting, it seemed like they were really aggressive with shifting to the slider. And and fortunately, the fastball was enough to where the fastball still could be the pitch that set everything up. But then the slider was the the finish pitch and. Uh, there was one sequence in particular, I think it was the sixth inning with Ramon Laureano, where uh, basically all three pitches confused him. He got this r- weird, ugly emergency check swing that followed off a changeup and then came b- right back with a slider, high slider, but uh, basically the top outside part of the zone, maybe even a little bit off the plate, but because I think it was so high and up in the umpire's eyes that made it easier to see like, Oh, that's on top of the plate. And so he got the call for strike three. And I think that was probably the best sequence of the entire game uh, where he had all three pitches were a threat. Even if he didn't get the whiff, it was enough to just completely rewire Loriano's brain.
0: Yeah. Lucas Giulietto generated 13 whiffs. So 28% of the pitches that he threw, the Oakland Athletic batters whiffed against. He had 19 called strikes. As far as his changeup, though, there are nine foul balls that the Oakland Athletic hitters generated off of Giolito's changeup. Only one ball in play against his changeup. I I know that he didn't get a lot of whiffs on the changeup, Jim, uh, especially for how many swings Oakland had on his changeup. But I'm okay if Giolito's changeup only... Produces one ball in play.
1: Yeah, there's a there was a lot of, or I would say at least a few loud foul balls down the line on changeups to where it might have dissuaded him or McCann from calling a second one. Like, uh, you know, the, yeah. not one going to go back to back. So, I think just the quality of contact on some of the fouls eliminated the pitch from further use in sequences. But you know, when you have another pitch you can go to, that's fine. You know, the, the fouls are a strike. The fouls set up a strikeout later down the line no matter what. So it was useful to his end here because the change wasn't the only pitch he had that was non-fastball at his disposal. And, and you could see from some ugly swings and some takes that uh, the, uh, yeah, the A's, I think, were expecting more changeups, more doubling up, more tripling up, and it just wasn't there.
0: As far as the rest of the White Sox pitching staff, Evan Marshall came in for Lucas Gilito. He picked up two outs. He did allow a hit, and I swear I keep typing this up, Jim. Every time Marshall allows a hit through the infield, it seems to be in the general vicinity of Nick Madrigal, and I always keep thinking, if Madrigal was two inches taller, he makes that catch, and then run doesn't score. Like, it barely, barely got past the leaping Nick Madrigal for a single. Uh, and that was the only hit that Evan Marshall allowed. Aaron Bummer came in, took two pitches to get out of the eighth inning and Alex Colome. I know it can be an adventure sometimes with Colomay. And as far as the optics, it doesn't always look like it's an easy, it's not an easy job for Colomay and it's not an easy experience for fans. But he made it really easy today in game one. He just threw 10 pitches and he struck out one for a 1-2-3 ninth inning to close up the White Sox first postseason victory since 2008 when John Danks was the starting pitcher for the White Sox and Bobby Jenks picked up the save in their win against the Tampa Bay Rays their only win in that divisional series as they lost three games to one.
1: Yeah, I've grown to appreciate Colum A just because his default facial expression is like, I don't know what the hell your problem is. <laughs> just, <laughs> like, you know, whether it's a base is clear, one, two, three inning, or if he's got like two on and one out uh, with a one run game, he his, his face always looks the same. It always looks like slightly annoyed that you're annoyed with him, like mutual, uh, yeah, just mutual Barely tolerant. Uh, yeah, maybe yeah, barely toleration of either side, but I've got, you know, seeing him for long enough and, and given that this is not our first month with him, uh, I've grown to trust him. Like when he comes in, like he's got this, whatever, take it, whatever shit. Got
0: it. As far as the White Sox offense, three players had multi head games. Tim Anderson was three for four with a double. Jose Abreu was two for four and Adam Engel was two for four. His first two plate appearances against Jesus Lizardo was a home run to lead the scoring and give the White Sox a one to nothing lead in the second inning. And then he chased Lizardo by, in his second at bat, hitting a double. I mean, what can you say about Adam Engel, Jim? I mean, I, we have given him a tough time and let's face it, he was over his head in 2018 to 2019. And we know that he struggles against right-handers. But in these situations where Adam Engel can succeed, he's coming up in big ways for the White Sox. And he did today in his first two plate appearances against Lazardo.
1: Yeah, with with Engel, it's, um, you know, his career has been defined by having to play too much. Like Peter Principle in action, he's a part-time player. He's a bench player. He's not a 150-game starter the way he's sometimes been used or at least used for long stretches. But when you have him facing against lefties, and that was a very welcome development last year, uh, especially during the second half of last year when he showed an ability to actually do some damage against lefties, that was basically that piece being put into place. Like, okay, he's got a career. You know, he's not just a second division starter. He's not somebody who just, you know, catches the ball well for a team that's not going anywhere. This is a guy who can be useful. You know, it was a small enough sample to where it wasn't a guarantee that he could carry it year over year, but. The fact that he has is really just uh, one of those things that makes a a team good, a team, a postseason team. Like I'm, I'm thinking with the Indians, like the Indians never look scary with their lineup after the top four, but they occasionally have the Jordan Luplo who can do damage against a specific kind of pitcher. And if Engel can be that guy uh, that, that can hammer a lefty when he's in and maybe. They sleep on him, maybe nobody game plans around him and the broadcasters don't talk about him until you know, he finally does something. Like, oh yeah, this guy's actually been pretty good against lefties and that's why he's playing. That's the kind of weapon that the White Sox haven't had or it's been the kind of player that the White Sox have had to use too much and just gets ground down by the course of the season. So the fact that he came in, I, you know, I, I wrote in the recap that the game followed the script almost perfectly and I think Engel is probably this the maybe the scriptiest player of them all because he was only in, he is like, basically he was only starting uh, or designed to start because the Oakland A's started a left-handed pitcher. And, you know, maybe he still starts because of his defense over Mazzara for right. He's still in, but basically like, that's the reason why, uh, it was a bad idea for Bob Melvin to start a lefties because they have guys who can hit lefties, including Adam Engel. And the fact that Engel hit that lefty hard twice in a row is, is only two chances uh, was basically yeah, summed up the case as to why Bob Melvin made a mistake or was flirting with danger by giving Lazardo the start. So... It was great to see him, you know, for multiple reasons, the the personal redemption story, but also just the, the strategic story behind it all, seeing him come up big
0: with the uh, two ch- shots he had to actually take advantage of that left-handed starter. And then Jose Abreu. I mean, he is, I, I think it's fair to say an all-time White Sox great. I think when his career is done with the White Sox, I wouldn't be surprised if they retire number 79 for the way that he has performed. But, you know, the way that he's been performing 20, 30 years from now, it may be forgotten, Jim, because he played on mostly bad White Sox teams. But in his first postseason game, to come up with that huge two-run homer to give the White Sox a cushion, I think that was a great moment for his career because he got that single in the first inning through the right side with two outs to move Tim Anderson to third base. But now he really cemented that I am here. I have arrived in the postseason. And that was a big two-run homer for the White Sox because it allowed Lucas Gilito and the rest of the team to breathe a little.
1: That was, I think, the most redeeming part of watching this game was seeing Jose Abreu one, you know, survive the rebuild, survive two rebuilds, in fact, and and finally get a postseason start, and then you know immediately delivers a singles first time up, you know, he, he's it's not going to be a, a complete waste of a postseason, you know, he's got a hit on board, he's got a batting average for the postseason. His baseball reference page will show that, and then yeah, the second time up just cracks the homer, and and it was such a. You know, talking about scripts and such, or just the the uh, bad ideas uh, on the other side, like Lizardo throwing a 2-0 fastball to Abreu with a base open and two outs. That is, you know, probably one of the less defensible thought processes <laughs> of the entire game. You know, it, with, with uh, you know, Rick Renteria leaving Gilito in to start the eighth, that was one of them. But even more so than that was letting Lizardo either... You know, not not just holding up four fingers to let Abreu take the base or just throw him junk to get out of it. Like throwing him a challenge fastball 2-0 or 2-0. Oh, and then, you know, Abreu not missing that fastball, getting every bit of it, hitting a uh, well, it's only a no doubter because the or it was there was only doubt because the wall in the left field is so high. Right. There's no doubter in terms of like uh arc and exit velocity for most other parks. It was just a very satisfying swing on, on you know, basically for all levels, like the fact that it was a doing it. And the fact that uh, Oakland's thought process was so poor that it felt like a hitting that Homer was the only thing he could have done at that time. And anything
0: less would have been a disappointment. And we talked about this in the pregame show. It's something that you mentioned, Jim, as far as the script that you're alluding to on the Oakland side, that's probably what they're talking about, right? Why did Lizardo, face the White Sox hitters a second time through the order. And Mm -hmm. I don't have a good answer from an Oakland perspective because I would agree with those critics questioning why do the athletics not go to the bullpen? Because after Lizardo left, the White Sox only generated one run and that was off of old friend, uh, Yachim Soria and Yasmani Grandel had that big home run. Uh, which was good because he was struggling uh, as far as offensively in the game, missing some opportunities, getting called out on strike three in his first at bat. Uh, But coming through in a big way to give the White Sox a a four to nothing win with his solo, a four to nothing lead, I should say, with his solo shot. But from Oakland's perspective, that's got to what, that has to be what they're talking about is it's going to be a tight game. It's going to be tight games in this series. You can't have someone like Lizardo or any lefty face this lineup more than one time through the order. Yeah, I can see
1: it one of two ways. Either, you know, not letting them face the order uh, the second time or, you know, just having certain guys saying, we can't beat we can't be beat by this hitter with a lefty on the mound. And I think Anderson's one of them. I think Abreu's another one. McCann is not that kind of hitter. Like if they walked Abreu and then McCann hit a three-run homer or a two-run double or something like that, uh, you know, assuming that it wasn't like a two-o fastball, but it was just like, a, you know, just a hitter beating a pitcher, you could say like, well, you know, that, that happened. We we pushed our lefty a bit too far. But James McCann is the kind of hitter that we can challenge. We can, you know, he's had a good season. He's an OK hitter. He's just not Abreu. But the fact that Abreu did it just doubles that pain, I think, of just not thinking this all the way through or not treating the White Sox ability to hit lefty seriously enough and, and validating Tim Anderson's critique of them a little bit. I think, you know, Anderson, when, when saying that uh, the A's didn't do their homework uh, against left-handed pitchers, like I could say that, you know, Anderson's poking him a little bit, but Luzardo is the best left-handed pitcher the White Sox have faced this year. So give it a shot. But when it comes to a second time through challenging Bray with the two-o fastball, That does validate Anderson's words that, okay, they were sleeping on him just even a little bit.
0: And fortunately for the White Sox, that little bit caused a lot of damage. Yeah, Tim Anderson had a big game, three for four. He made some really good defensive plays, especially in the eighth inning. On the defensive front, Yohan Mercado also had some big catches in foul territory, and you have to take advantage of it. Every time that there's a foul ball or a pot fly in foul territory in Oakland, you are hoping... That the White Sox infielders can go get them. Obviously, for the Oakland Athletics, they practice in the stadium. They make those catches all of the time. So if there's a fly ball in foul territory and the camera swipes over or changes to an Oakland defender chasing it down, more times than not, they're going to make that catch. And it's going to be a terrible feeling because in guaranteed rate field, that ball's in the stands. That hitter has a second chance. Not in Oakland. But Mikata made those two catches, especially in the ninth inning with the ball in the sun. And I don't know how he was able to see that ball looking through his glove, maybe, uh, and coming up with that first uh, out in the ninth inning and then stealing a hit away from Marcus Simeon. That was a smooth, smooth play by Makata in the ninth inning. But the outfield defense, Jim, of Luis Robert, Lurie Garcia, and Adam Engel, offensively, I don't think we can expect much from Lurie Garcia. There's a lot of rust that he's trying to break off. And I know that Adam Engel, uh, as far as offensively, he's not going to give you a lot against righties. But when you're playing in a vast outfield, especially a vast space in Oakland, I don't think it's the worst idea in the world if Renteria for Game 2 decides on going Robert, Engel, and Garcia again. I know I'm not getting a lot of offense, but I know defensively, we'll be taken care of. Even with Jimenez starting, if he does start, I think Jimenez needs to be the DH because James McCann today was 0 for 4 with three strikeouts, and he he struggled. I don't know what his game plan is. He was way too aggressive against Lazardo. Yeah, like he was the he was the one that really stuck out. Like, did you get the scouting report, James, <laughs> against Lazardo? Because his plate appearances against Lazardo did not match what we were seeing from Anderson. I know Mikado went 0 for 4, but he had two hard hits uh, and a Brayu. Like, McCann had a, a good opportunity with two outs, with runners on first and third. And it just wasn't that great of a plate appearance for McCann. So I think for game two, I would rather have Jimenez be the DH and then roll with Robert Engel and Garcia again as the outfield.
1: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I I think I would wait to see just how Jimenez's foot is responding and whether he can play the outfield. I think if he's like 100% in the outfield, I think I would start him there uh, just because Larry just probably isn't that big of an upgrade, um, especially since he's dealing with rust of his own. But yeah, if he's, I would say like 75% in the outfield, uh, given both... Uh, yeah, Jimenez. Thinking about Jimenez as a 75% defender is not a comforting thought. McCann against a a righty who throws from like three quarters is not a great thought. And so, yeah, you're probably better off just taking the outs. I, I think that was a nice thing about the two catcher lineup, though. Even though McCann didn't deliver at the plates, you know, taking advantage of that full two catcher flexibility is that you know you did have Grandall at DH, and I was very happy he hit that homer just because you know with the nature of Grandall's game and how. Um, you know, how his skills are somewhat on the less appreciated side or the less noticeable side, like drawing walks. Nobody gets too jazzed up about drawing walks and framing, you know, that can go unnoticed. But, you know, if he takes a strike three, if he drops a pitch because he is trying to frame it, uh, you know, those are the things that fans do notice. And so the negative uh, emotions and negative reputation of a guy can pile up if he doesn't do something to prove his value. So to see that, uh, You know, dramatic, no doubt, bat drop homer off Soria, I think was what he needed to keep fans on his side.
0: Yeah, I I think that's, yeah, that's a fair point. But even if he's 75%, I think you got to have him in as his bat in the lineup for game two. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Now, I just, I don't know if I want to see Nomar Mazzara. I mean, I I think that's going to be the sticking point. I don't know how many White Sox fans want to see Nomar Mazzara in the game two lineup, but he probably will be because Renteria will go with the left-handed hitter. He'll go with the platoon advantage facing a right-handed starter. We'll see. That's just my assumption. But defensively watching G Lito start, you know, there are times that, Oh man, that was hit really well by the Oakland athletics hitter. And Garcia's there in position and Engel is there. And Robert is there just, they're all athletic and they could all cover a lot of ground in the outfield. When they're out there, I'm not worried. Whereas if you do have Jimenez start in left field, come in the 7th or 8th inning of the White Sox, if, it, if it's a tight game again, and the White Sox have the lead, you're going to have to, Renteria may have to make that choice, Jim, to take Jimenez's bat out of the lineup and go with Gerard Dyson just to make sure that he's got a left fielder that can make the play when needed. And let's face it, that's an adventure with Jimenez when he's playing defense. Well that was the one thing I was
1: thinking too with the outfield. If you want a left-handed bat against Bassett while having a good outfielder, he could put Dyson out there. Sure. Probably you know, it's it's probably asking too much of him to deliver, but in terms of if you want a left-handed batter there, the only thing is it cuts down Renteria's flexibility later in the game. If he doesn't want that defensive sub, you know, maybe Garcia is there uh, to be that defensive sub. That's maybe one reason why, you know, he's back. Even if he's rusty is that one way or another, he can use Dyson early and Garcia late or Garcia early and Dyson late and still have that pinch running slash defensive replacement ability. Yeah. I think Mazzara, I'd be okay with him starting uh game two. I think his, you know, he's not a, a threat at the plate, but he's also, you know, his production is not empty. I, I think he made enough contact and made enough variety of contact to where he did find holes, did find, uh, you know, did beat the shift, uh, caught the balls that were hit in his direction. You know, he's not like going to create outs where outs aren't there, but he, you know, he doesn't break the wrong way. His reads are pretty reliable, his throws are pretty reliable. Like I don't hate seeing him out there the way people hate seeing him out there. <laughs> uh you know, when there are no better options. I think if Jimenez is healthy playing left, I want to see Angle and right. But if Jimenez is not, you know, if he's compromised in the outfield, I'd rather see Angle and left and Mazzara and right facing the righty. I, I think that's my opinion where I'm at right now. I guess we'll see if that changes tomorrow and whether there's any reports changing that. But uh I think I'd still rather keep Dyson for those key. We need a we need a better outfielder in there for the ninth inning of a one run game. That's I think probably where he's safest because Garcia, you know, while he's still, you know, while he's a better outfielder, he's still maybe a bit rusty. You know, like mm-hmm. just coming off a such a, a long leave uh, time. You know, there might be a case where a fly ball is hit that fools him. You know, just because he hasn't seen the the visual reps. I will say that Roberts, I really like the way he played center field. He had a couple tough chances. Hard hit balls going in going back, feeling the warning track and never looked out of control.
0: Yeah. Keep White Sox pitchers allow fly balls to be hit to center field. Not too hard, not to go in the seats, but I've got a really good feeling if they're hitting the center field, Robert's going to, he's going to run them down. He's yeah, got a like lot of space to run things down out there.
1: And it seems like he's found professional equilibrium you know, both at the plate and in the field, I think there were maybe a couple weeks there where the problems at the plate were seeping into his defense mm. yep. uh, a little bit, You know, m- missing some catchable balls on the warning track that that were there. But in, over like the last uh, series or two, I think everything's kind of stabilized. He's not
0: quite the dynamic presence that he was in August, but at least he's a contributor. Yeah, and he picked up his first postseason hit. In his rookie year, Uh, Luis Robert went one for four with a single, and that was a good hit. It was a 0-1 breaking pitch on the outside that he was able to loop into center field for a single. And hey, you got to take those hits. I mean, Jose Abreu had the monster home run, but he was able to also beat the shift and hit a single in his first at bat to right field. That's just a type of different Swings that you've been mentioning, Jim, with Noah Mazzara for Luis Robert, he needs to learn how to have different types of swings for different types of situations and get himself on base through base hits or again, demonstrating some of the patience we saw during the regular season for him to get walks. But I think that was a, a good sign for him. I mean, hey. It's a four-game hitting streak now, Jim, for Luis Robert. He got mm-hmm. a hit in the last three games against the Cubs and picks up a hit in game one of the American League wildcard series against the Oakland Athletics. Before we wrap up as far as the post-game show, I have to ask. I know that we've been really busy taking notes and watching every pitch as far as the White Sox Athletics. By any chance, did you have a tablet, phone, or another monitor on what happened in the ninth inning in Minneapolis between the Astros and twins. I was flipping back and forth.
1: (laughs) So I did actually miss a couple pitches of the uh, eighth inning for the White Sox. I had to go back to because I was too uh, enamored with what was going on at target field.
0: Yeah. Jorge Polanco, man, Minneapolis sports radio is going to ride (laughs) him hard. Yeah, I didn't see the error, but I did see the thousand yard stare with him chewing gum
1: afterwards in the field behind uh, Romo on the mound and in the dugout. It was just a like, lazy
0: throw to second base. It was it was a lazy soft throw to second that sailed wide and allowed the inning to continue. I mean, Sergio Romo didn't help matters. He walked Jose Altuve and he almost hit him in that same Played appearance. Like Romo did not have the control that we've seen Romo have, especially when he's pitched against the White Sox. Um, But then when Michael Brantley singled to center field and scored two more runs to make it four to one, I mean, that is 17 straight postseason losses for the Minnesota Twins, Jim. And that's why I didn't predict them to advance. I'm already feeling bad about my bracket.
1: I'm already (laughs) feeling I need them to show me something before I put any faith in them.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was a big win for the Houston Astros as they won game one. And so far, that's kind of where we're at right now. As far as the major league postseason, the Astros won game one and the Chicago White Sox have won game one. And as we sign off right now, it's the Tampa Bay Rays won the Toronto Blue Jays zero in the sixth inning. You want to guess how the Rays scored their run, Jim? Uh, I don't know. Home solo Homer wild pitch offense, baby. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love postseason baseball. And uh, it's it's a great time that the White Sox are involved and the White Sox win game one. We will be having the pregame show for game two as will be Dallas Keuchel for the Chicago White Sox against old friend Chris Bassett for the Oakland Athletics. The Sox Machine pregame show will start at 1.30 p.m. Central Time, which you can listen to us on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine and on Sox Machine Dot com and that will do it for the this edition of the sox machine post game show you can help support us at patreon.com slash Socks machine by becoming a friend we have socks machine swag that you can get as well we have the coffee mugs which are terrific we have the new sox machine t-shirts which we're now getting Twitter models so thank you for those that have gotten the shirt and now are volunteering to model your t-shirts if you are interested in becoming a sox machine t-shirt model tag us. As you take a picture of yourself in the new shirt, and we will share that. We will use you for free to model our new t-shirt. We will use you. <laughs> uh, so Jonathan is the most is our new model. Uh, not as communist as our previous <laughs> model. <laughs> but Jonathan looks good. And you can look good too by buying the new Socks Machine shirt, which you can purchase for $25, include shipping on socksmachine.com. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. That will do it for the Sox Machine Post Game Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow to preview Game 2 of the American League Wildcard Series. From earaches to strep tests, there's MinuteClinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's healthier made easier. Visit MinuteClinic at CVS today. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details.